Okay, so uh, appreciate everybody uh, coming again. Uh, part two of our introduction to the uh, to the thirteen uh, principles, and uh, tonight we're going to uh, elaborate a little bit more about the content of the principles themselves, about what uh, is actually contained in them, and what is their uh, their, their significance. So Yaakov Weinberg, uh, Zatzal. He was a Rosh Hashiva in near Yisrael in uh, in Baltimore, so he made the uh, the following uh, observation. Uh, I always say it in his name, but I assume it's not something which uh, which he in the basic idea. But I, I would assume that it uh, it uh, predates him by uh, by generations and generations or so. But that in order for something to be go from a simple belief system into a religion. So there has to be three components. So you can have lots of isms which exist in the world, all sorts of different uh, uh, types of uh, belief which people have, but what's going to qualify specifically as a religion is going to be something which has three components. And they are, number one is, there has to be some sort of divine being. That's uh, step number one, pre uh, prerequisite number one for a religion. Number two is, once you accept the premise that there is a divine being, so that divine being has to provide some sort of instructions to the followers as far as what they should be doing and what they should not be doing. And then component number three is there's always going to be an element of reward and punishment. There's going to be uh, you know, some, uh, some heaven, there's going to be Gan Eden, there's going to be 70 virgins, there's going to be something which is in store for those who follow the, uh, the dictates of the, uh, the divine being. And then there's going to be, uh, um, you know, hell and damnation for those who do not believe or the heretics or the infidels, or again, whatever you would like to go ahead and whatever term that you would like to go ahead and use to, uh, to describe them. So those are the three basic components of everything which is going to go from a simple belief system into a religion, divine being, a, a set of instructions, and then reward and punishment for that. Now, with that in mind, we go high tech and uh, PDF appears on your screen. I apologize if it's a little bit. Yes, smaller. it's fine. It's fine. I'll make it a little bit bigger. So what we're looking at right now initially is, uh, so I'm going to have to make it smaller. Uh, actually, we'll go down. Uh, we're going to start off with on the left hand side over here. So here you have it's the Rambam's Ikarim. These are the 13 principles in three primary groups. So what we have over here is the first five out of the 13. So they all revolve around existence of the creator. So these are the first component that we mentioned of the belief in a divine. So they are, again, the way, it's a, the, way the Rambam breaks it down is mitziyuso yisbarach, the existence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu as the creator. Achduso yisbarach, the fact that God is, uh, is one, Hashem Echad, as opposed to having two gods or God being able, being a multiple personality, God is one. Number three, non-corporeality, the fact that God does not have any body whatsoever. Number four is Heyoso Kadmon, that the eternity of God, he always, he was, is, and will be. And number five is, and this is one which we're going to talk about a little bit more later, this is Shiroi La'avdo Zulaso, that the only one whom we worship is God and nothing else. 
So we don't worship constellations. We don't want worship sun and moons. We don't worship angels. We don't have saints in the same way that some other religions do. So we, uh, we are going to dive into and we're going to worship only God and nothing else. So the first five out of the 13, so they, sorry, they, why can't I get it to go off? They relate to, I want to lift it up. It's not lifting. Okay. Not going to work. Okay. So the, oh, you have arrows. Goes. I was going to use go. your arrows. There we go. I got. So that's the first five. So the first five out of the thirteen revolve around the existence of God, defining for us who who exactly uh, God is. Now the next four. This has to do, he, they, uh, the way they frame it is, Torah minas shamayim is the divine origin of Torah. So the next four principles relate to the instructions which HaKadosh Baruch Hu has provided for us, essentially the Torah. But it has nothing to do with the mitzvahs of the Torah. These principles don't contain any of the mitzvahs per se, but rather it's also going to be a progression. So number one is the existence of nevuah. So we have to believe as a fundamental principle, the fact that God, uh, with all of the five qualities which we described in the first five principle, he is going to have some means of communication with mankind, what we call nevua, but it's going to be some means of communication. The next one is the fact that not only is there a concept of nevua, but that the nevua of Moshe Rabbeinu is, um, is the, uh, the highest level of nevua which can ever be uh, achieved. And that's going to be essential because if we're going to believe in the, in the next principle, or the, the, sorry, the, the, the um, five, six, seven, eight, the eighth principle is going to be uh, the fact that the Torah doesn't change. So the fact that the reason the Torah doesn't change is because the Nevuah of Moshe Rabbeinu is better than anybody else's uh, Nevuah, any other Navi's uh, prophecy. And therefore, that's going to give the Torah the stature which it has that we're going to be, uh, we're going to follow it. Then, once we know that Moshe Rabbeinu is the best uh, of the prophets, uh, that type of thing. So the next one after that is going to be the Torah Minashamayim, the belief that the Torah which we have in our present form, the text of the Torah itself, we're not talking about Mishnayis or Gemara, things like that, although that also is true, but that's not what we're referring to, but the text of the Torah itself is what we received at Harsinai. We have this unbroken chain of transmission from Harsinai in the year 2448, all the way to where we find ourselves now, 5781. And then the last of the principles which are in this category is the immutability of Torah, is the fact that Torah cannot change. By definition, once there was this divine revelation, which took place on the Yontif of Shavuos in the year 2448, so God does not go ahead and come up with New Testaments. He doesn't revise. There's not Bible 2.0 or anything of that uh, sort. Operating systems may change, and uh, various uh, programs on our computers can be changed and updated in all sorts of ways. But the Torah itself is immutable and is not going to change at all. So that satisfies or that addresses category number two, the divine instruction, the instructions from the divine being. And then the last four principles to round off the uh, the 13th, 
So this is nine, um, nine, 10, 11, 12, sorry. This is 10, 11, 12, 13. So this has to do with uh, the way that, uh, the, that the, this author went ahead and uh, framed it is Yediyas Hashem, the divine omniscience, not that we know who God is, but God knows what's going on in the world. And then Hashkacha L'schar Va'onish, and divine providence as far as how it affects reward and punishment. So this is the third component which we talked about, the fact that the divine being not only provides us with a clear set of instructions what to do and what not to do, but he also provides us with a system of reward and punishment, uh, which also is going to be an integral part of the, uh, uh, the definition of who we are of Judaism as a religion. And those are, so the first one of those, of the final four, is Yediyah Sashem Vashkacha Pratis. So this is the fact that number one, God is all-knowing, that's the omniscient part. And then individual divine providence, God not only knows what's going on on a collective level, that he knows what's happening in the universe, and he knows generally what's going to be happening on the, on the globe, but he knows what's going on with each individual. So it's an individualized type of, uh, of providence. Number two is the fact that there is reward and punishment. So if you do good things, if we do mitzvahs, so and we refrain from doing averas, so Akash Baruch Hu is going to reward us in the event that we do averas or we don't do mitzvahs we're supposed to do. So there's going to be a consequence for that. I don't know if I know. I don't know if I want to call it a punishment, but we'll say a consequence for that. Then what's interesting are the next two, which fit into this as far as future and reward and punishment and what the final outcome or the final goal of the divine intent is, number one, is the existence of Mashiach. So there's going to be this era, which should, uh, should happen speedily, but there's going to be this era in which the world is going to enter into a some sort of state of perfection, some sort of improved uh, state of, of being, of existence, of knowledge of God. And then the final one is is the fact that there's going to be resurrection. The fact that those who have died are going to come back to life. And during that time, as we'll see when we get to that, uh, that principle, which uh, at this rate, uh, it'll be a few weeks before we, uh, before we get there. But it's something which is going to, that's where the ultimate reward is going to be, uh, is going to occur, is during that time of that is the final stage where the world is actually in its state of perfection. So these are the three categories. The 13 principles, as we said, breaks down nicely into three categories. First five, defining God. Middle four, relating to Torah, the divinity of Torah. And then the final four, all revolving around reward and punishment. Okay, now, there. Okay, so that is the way we, uh, the way we un uh, understand that. Um, um, Now, actually, we're going to go back. Now, if we go back and we look at it, so uh, as we said, there we go. So as we um, said, so the Rambam went ahead and he formulated his 13 principles. So he went ahead and he identified 13 principles, none of which of, uh, of those principles are more important or less important than the other. He has one term for all the principles, which is an ikr, which, are, which we would translate as principles, and all of them are going to be treated the, uh, the same. 
from the time that the Rambam, as we talked about a little bit last week, from the time that the Rambam formulated these 13 principles, so you then have other rabbis and philosophers and thinkers who come along and will disagree, will modify, will formulate their, uh, their own list as far as uh, what, 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 uh, how they see how philosophy should be broken down. So one of them, you see the name over here, by the hand over here, is of Yosef Albo. Yosef Albo wrote a work called the Sefer Haikaren. Not such a well-known uh, book now because uh, people are uh, much more focused on the Rambam and the 13 principles. But Rav Yosef Albo, in which he's known primarily for this, uh, this uh, philosophical degree, uh, disagreement, which he had with the Rambam about this, but he maintained that really we should divide things into uh, different ways. That there are Shirashim, he uses the model of a tree. So there's the Shoresh, so that's going to be the root of the tree. And then there's going to be the Anafim, and then there's going to be um, the branches of the tree. So you have the root of the tree and you have the branches of the tree. And obviously in that mushal, in that, uh, that parable, so there are, go- actually I should take it back a step. He has three ikarim, three primary principles rather than 13. Those principles get divided up into shrashim and anafim. So there are the roots and then there are the branches. So the root is obviously going to be more fundamental than a branch. You could snip off a branch here and there, and it's not going to affect the overall system of the tree. But if you start, if one starts tampering with the roots of a tree, so that could actually kill the tree out uh, altogether. So for the most part, if you look at what the Rav Yosef Albo has is in, in his list from his Sefari Karim, so you have almost the exact same list, just formulated slightly differently. So he begins also with principle number one, the existence of the creator. And under that, that's the ikr, that is the principle as a shorish of that, as a root of that. So you have these four different parts. He has unity of God, that's the achdus of God, Hashem Echad. Incorporeality is the fact that God, like we say in Yigdal, the fact that Hashem doesn't have a body. See, God transcends time and is eternal. That's the fact that Hashem is, that's the eternity of God. That was the fourth principle of the Rambam, that, ha, that Hashem is Haya Hove He was, is, and will be. And then D, he adds in, which is not, the, the Rambam doesn't disagree with this. He just doesn't specify it as a, uh, as a principle, but it's really a subcategory of Achtus, of the unity of God. But he sees as one of the important um, definitions of the important roots of God's existence is the perfection of God. That we cannot uh, assign any sort of imperfection to God's existence and whatever existence God has, however we're going to go ahead and we're going to describe him, it's always going to be in in a perfect form. Okay, then, so Iker number two, the second principle as far as Yosef Albo is concerned. So this has to do, as it says, the divine origin of the Torah. So he also break, he breaks it down into two parts rather than what the, uh, what the Rambam broke it down into four. So number one is the fact, the existence of prophecy. So in order for the Torah to be true, we have to accept the premise that there's such a thing as prophecy, that there's communication from the divine to human beings. Then once we accept the premise that there exists such a thing as prophecy, so then the next thing is that Moshe Rabbeinu is the most authentic of prophets, 
the most authentic of our Nevi'im, and he was the one who was tasked with the responsibility of bringing the Torah from Shemayim down to Aretz, from bringing the Torah from the heavens down to, to earth, and that is uh, that the, the all of the instructions of the Torah, all 613 mitzvahs, rely are, uh, could only uh, exist once you accept that found those two foundations of the existence of prophecy and the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu is the one who was the the ultimate prophet who was able to go up and 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 get for us the uh, the Torah. Then you have in his third part you have the divine reward and retribution. So again, it's the same three principles. He just looks at them as, as broader categories than subcategories. So for this, he puts three shirashim, three uh, roots under this uh, category. Number one is omniscience of God. So God has to be all-knowing. Uh, if God is not all-knowing, then he's going to have a hard time providing any sort of framework of reward and punishment. Reward and punishment uh, in its truest form has to be able to take into account. It has to be able to consider all of the different factors which exist, all of the different conditions of our lives, and only an omniscient God is going to be able to take all of that into a, a account. Any human who attempts to, uh, to judge is by definition going to fall short of that task because we can't know all of the details and all of the background and all of the conditions and all of the stuff uh, which is not obvious, only God knows that. The second part is the fact that there is schar and onesh, that once we accept the premise that there is a God who is all-knowing, so we uh, we then, uh, with that uh, that um, that omniscience, so God has the capacity, not only the capacity, but He goes at and He rewards and punishes accordingly, appropriately, and accordingly. And then the third part of that, which the Rambam doesn't mention as as a principle but it has to be something which is presumed in order for the uh, principle of reward and punishment to exist is that, but the, but Rav Yosef Albo, the Sefer Ikarim goes ahead and speaks it out. He expresses it explicitly. He says there's such a thing as free will. There's Bechira Chavshis. If we don't actually have free will, so then there's no, you can't have reward and punishment. You don't reward and punish inanimate objects for, uh, for things which they do because it wasn't something which, uh, which they control. We don't reward and punish animals who run on instinct rather than on rational uh, thought and consideration. That's something which is uniquely human. And uh, that also is going to be a necessary prerequisite of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of, uh, of our belief system. Now, the one thing that the, uh, um, the uh, now, sorry. Now the six anafim, the six branches which Rav Yosef Albo identifies is, that's what we have in this list over here, is creation ex nihilo. So the fact that Akash Baruch Hu created something from nothing, that actually happens to be one of the, uh, if not the greatest uh, miracle of all, is to be able to create something from nothing. That's what actual creation is, is to create something from nothing. So that is a principle of, uh, of our belief. Number two is, the supremacy of the prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu. So the Rambam identified this as an ikr, as a principle in and of itself. But the, the uh, Yosef Albo sees this as an anaf, as a branch, but not something which is at the root. Number three, immutability of the Torah, the fact that the Torah can't change. D, number four, is the fact that there's going to be olam haba. That's, the, the, that's where the ultimate reward is going to be distributed. 
that's going to be the world to come. That's what we are working towards to be able to get there. Number five is resurrection or Tchias HaMesim. The Rav Yosef Abo seems to put them in the same category, whereas the Rambam differentiated between the two of them. He went ahead, I'm oh, sorry, no, that's, I'm sorry. Resurrection of Tchias HaMesim is the same. That, that is, that's the final principle according to the Rambam. And then the last one is the coming of Mashiach. So that's the second to last is the Rambam, but that's also something which is mentioned. And he points out over here in the, the one who put together these lists, who worded these lists. So he says the only thing that the Rambam mentions, which Rav Yosef Albo does not mention, not as an ikr, not as a shorish, a root, or even as a branch, is the fact that we're supposed to worship HaKadosh Baruch Hu exclusively. So that is the last of the first set of principles according to the Rambam, Iker number five according to the Rambam, and Rav Yosef Abu does not count that as one of the uh, does not count that as one of the uh, Ikarim. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Uh, he, I I don't see punishment. I just see reward in this guy. Um, in Rav Yosef Abu. Yeah. Um, Did I miss it somewhere? Uh, he, see where the hand is? Yeah. It says schar ve onesh. So onesh is going to be punishment. I don't know why, okay. why he decided not to go ahead and uh, uh, actually it's, it's funny the way, they, the way he phrases it. He says it's divine providence for schar and onesh. So really the, uh, the emphasis is going to be on the fact that God knows what's happening so that he could reward and punish. Say so right. The the punishment part of it is not something which is a uh, which is an ichor to uh, to be mindful of, because he he he, he separates out uh, reward and specifies it. Right. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. you bring yeah. up an excellent point. I, I don't. Whereas know. as uh, what's his name? Uh, <laughs> Rambam doesn't. Rambam. What's his name? Yeah. Rambam specifically says divine uh, uh, retribution and reward. Yeah, you you are correct. You are correct. That's very good. I can speculate, but uh, we'll see when we get to the principle of, uh, of reward in the Rambam, where uh, uh, we'll talk about that, uh, that more, God willing. Um, right, okay. So now, uh, so as we said, so although they have these two different uh, lists and we may identify them or refer to them by different names, Ultimately, uh, the uh, the belief systems are basically uh, are basically the same, and certainly on the more global level, as far as being able to say the agreement that you have to believe in a divine, you have to believe in a Torah, and then you have to believe in reward and punishment. So those are all things which are which are essential. Uh, what they say over from Reb Chaim Salvechik is the idea that the Rambam uh, took the perspective that something which is that there cannot be such a thing as a primary principle of belief or a secondary principle of belief because once you start going ahead and you're saying one is primary and one is secondary so secondary already means it's not as important as something else in the rambam as we talked about last week the rambam is really of the opinion that all of these are essential beliefs for a person to uh, to have and therefore you can't start uh putting them at different levels saying that there is the ikr there's the shorish and then there's the anaf that there's the principle, and then there's the root, and there's the, the branch, because once you start doing so, so it makes it seem as if I t- sometimes, uh, you know, somebody will say, oh, that's only a drabanan. So the implication when somebody says, oh, it's only drabanan, as if to say, well, I don't really have to do it because it's only drabanan, or someone will say, oh, it's only a minog. 
as if you could just dispense with something simply because it's a minug rather than coming from the Torah. And that's actually not the way things go. We don't just dispense with things because it's not a daraisa. We, take, we try and take them uh, seriously. And certainly when it comes to matters of belief, so the Rambam was extremely, extremely sensitive as we'll talk about over the course of these, uh, these weeks and these discussions. So many of this, uh, uh, in, in all likelihood, a primary motivation that the Rambam had to formulate these principles was to explain why it is that we're not Muslim and we're not Christian. He was well aware of Christian beliefs. He was well aware of Muslim beliefs. He was well aware of Zoroastrian beliefs. So all these different major religions which were going on, which existed in his time. And the Rambam, as the, as the, when he put on his philosopher hat, he took off his halacha hat for a bit, and he went ahead and he put on his philosopher hat. So many of these principles are there specifically, the term that we would use in Hebrew or that we would use in the Gemara is la fuke. It's coming to demonstrate that we don't hold like that. We don't believe that there could be such a thing as a New Testament. It violates the very, the very core of our belief to believe, uh, that there could exist such a thing as a New Testament because the Torah is immutable. And you can't have subsequent prophets, whether you're going to call them Jesus or whether you're going to call them Muhammad or whether you're going to call them whatever name you're going to call them, there can't be subsequent prophets who are going to come along and undermine the prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu because... The prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu is supreme, is better than everybody else's, and nobody's going to be able to go ahead and, uh, and undo that. And we can't come along and start tinkering with or tampering with the wording of the Torah uh, when we, we come across situations or passages or sections which make us uncomfortable and don't seem to conform with uh, quote-unquote modern sensibilities. It's not that we have to adapt the Torah to the modern sensibilities. It's that we have to understand what the Torah is trying to, uh, to tell us. And sometimes it, it may turn out, not sometimes, that it will turn out that when there's a clash between them, so the Torah is going to be correct. And uh, our uh, perception of things, our thinking about things is usually the one which, uh, which is off. And all of these are going to be part of these uh, principles. And it's for that reason that the Rambam is comfortable identifying everything equally as a principle without creating the hierarchy that Rav Yosef Albo uh, generated of most important principles, subcategories and sub-subcategories of, uh, uh, of those things. Okay, now, so far we're good? Excellent, okay. So now, um, Right. So now, um, right. So the uh, as far as the first five principles are are, are concerned, uh, in the uh, in the uh, our definition of God, our definition of Akharish Baruch in the nature of God. So this is uh, this is important because. Um, this is, uh, the, the Medrash describes it as, a, the, gives the following uh, marshal, that uh, a, a, a king comes to a new country, Medrash doesn't talk about why he shows up in that country, but he goes waltzing into, that, uh, into, a, into a new country, and the people say, okay, if you're the king, go ahead and provide us with a set of laws. So the king says to the people, before I could go ahead and provide you with a set of laws, so I need to know that you are willing to accept my sovereignty. If you're willing to accept my sovereignty, you're willing to accept me as the king, then it makes sense for me to go ahead and to 
issuer to provide some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of law structure, some sort of structure of laws. If you're not going to go ahead and accept my authority in the first place anyways, my sovereignty in the first place anyways, so then there's no point in going ahead and making laws which are just going to go ahead and, uh, and be ignored. That's something which is a, a futile uh, endeavor to go ahead and try and put something in place which is just going to be ignored. So these first five principles that relate to God's existence, so this is so that we should know who we are interacting with. Like we touched upon a little bit the last week, it's the first five principles, which ultimately are going to enhance the part, the, the pillar of our service of HaKadosh Baruch Hu called Avoda. That's going to be the service of Hashem. That's the part, that's going to be those principles which are going to most uh, elevate our davening and make our davening more meaningful because it's, uh, we will know uh, from a much better and deeper uh, and more informed perspective who exactly we are interacting with and who we are uh, who we're trying to uh, to connect with. Now, the next four principles, as we said, that deals with the instructions that uh, that uh, that we have of the uh, of the Torah, and um, uh, they they lay down for us this very important uh, idea, this very important notion through the uh, the principles of specifically of. Let me bring it back up. Um, when we talk about the divine origin of Torah on the left side, the, uh, sorry, the authenticity of prophecy, the unsurpassed stature of Moshe and his prophecy, divine origin of the Torah, and immutability of Torah, what this tells us, like we just uh, mentioned a little uh, a couple minutes ago, is the fact that we believe that Torah law is something which is going to prevail, and it's something which is applicable, and it's something which is uh, which is universal. So these are things which it doesn't make a difference. Uh, where we live, the country of origin that our ancestors come from. It doesn't matter what century we happen to live in. It doesn't matter whether we are in the uh, 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 an exile or we are in a state of redemption. We're in a state of uh, of, of binyan of uh, of with a base or not. So the commandments are always going to be unchanging, and they are not going to be subject to our will, our thought process, our our desires, anything of that. Uh, of that at all. If there was ever the possibility that we could go ahead and we could escape responsibility of the mitzvahs, that they're not going to be binding on us, if that was a possibility, or if it was possible that we can make minor adjustments and amendments and changes in all sorts of things, then the binding nature of Torah then falls away. And we see this with uh, with other movements which uh, uh, have the belief, or at least started off with the belief that you can make slight changes to things related to the Torah. But once you could go ahead and you could start manipulating, however slightly you go ahead and do so, and you may th- one may think that it's a minor change, may, one may think it's a minor insignificant change, but once you realize that you could manipulate, so then the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the horse is out of the barn and there's no way to be able to call that back in. Then everything is now up for review and everything can be decided as to whether or not we think it continues to make sense or we think that it no longer makes sense. We think it's an appropriate belief and we're going to keep it, or we think that it's not an appropriate belief and we're not going to uh, to keep it. Once we entertain the possibility that that's true, so then the very fabric and the very structure of Torah, suddenly it crumbles away. And what happens is that a person is doing, though they, they essentially, 
become somebody who worships themselves in their own belief, in their own thought process. Because if you, if you have the ability to decide which things make sense and which don't, and things don't make sense, and which things are outdated, and which things are no longer relevant, so that means that really you're worshiping the thoughts which exist in your own head. So all it has to do is if it resonates by you, then you're going to do it. If it doesn't resonate by you, you're not going to do it. That doesn't demonstrate any sort of submission to the divine. That becomes a submission to the individual, to your own uh, thought process and your own thinking, but it has nothing at all to do with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and, and his Torah. And that's why uh, we sort of, uh, um, we look um, uh, with uh, great suspicion at those religions which don't really have um, a, a hesitancy to go ahead and start making changes as they see fit, as times change and as the uh, environment changes and as the uh, the uh, belief system changes, these things uh, these, these things happen all the time. The example that I have in my notes from a number of years ago was the uh, that the uh, the Mormon Church when they first started. Again, I, I don't remember where I got this from. When the Mormon first uh, church first began, so they had a rule against accepting blacks. That was the rule that you had there. You couldn't be uh, you couldn't be Mormon and and be black. Then comes the 60s and comes a change in the entire uh, society as far as uh, equal rights and civil rights and all of that is concerned. And suddenly the Mormon church finds themselves behind the eight ball as being this discriminatory religion. So amazingly, there's a new revelation. And that new revelation updates the Mormon church 2.0. And Mormon church 2.0 now says that these are things that there's going to be no issue with accepting blacks as members of the Mormon church. And conveniently, that revelation took place right at the time that the rest of society was coming on board as far as, as, far as that is concerned. A more modern example, more recent example, maybe, and I don't know all the details of it. Uh, you know, it's not it's not that important to me that, uh, that that I bothered researching it. But whatever the Pope said about same-sex marriages, whether it, he's giving it some sort of religious approval or whether it's just a civil union, whatever he said, but somehow that seemed to be a major departure from the way the Church has seen it up until this point in history. And I think everybody agrees that, I don't know if they call it a revelation. Again, I don't know the, 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 the nuances of how uh, uh, the Pope and his, uh, um, uh, his infallibility is going to work and whatnot, but somehow he was able to go ahead and change things. And it's not by coincidence that this change occurred in the 21st century rather than let's say the 11th century or the 20th century, or the 19th century, or the 18th century, those things, if a pope were to do so, so that uh, I imagine that he wouldn't have lasted too long in the position if he were to go ahead and adopt such a position. So this is demonstrative of what happens to a religion when it's possible to change things. So that's why the belief in the Torah, and specifically the immutability of Torah, is something which is such a fundamental never going to change. What we need to do is we need to conform our perception of things or our thought of things, our attitude towards things to make sure that they conform uh, uh, with, uh, with Torah. Undoubtedly, uh, many of you are thinking about various uh, Torah things which we don't do. 
So you'll save that when we get to that uh, that uh, that principle. I can tell from a couple of smiles on the face, you're probably composing emails as I'm talking right now uh, to go ahead and to uh, to point that out for me. So I'll let you know. I'm fully aware of that. I'm uh, I'm thinking about that, and I'm mindful of it. And uh, when we get to the actual principle itself, so we will uh, we will talk about it. Then the last of the the set is going to be reward and punishment. So when it comes to reward and punishment, so right off the bat, we should be thrown by this notion that it's a, it's a principle of belief, not just a principle of belief, but that we have four principles of belief which revolve around reward and punishment. Because as, as those of you who have been keeping up to date with the, uh, the Pirkei Avos stuff, which, uh, which we, we send out on Shabbos. So we already did the Mishnah in the uh, first parak of, uh, of Pirkei Avos, which said that, you're not, that one should not serve God on condition to get rewarded. So that also is a fundamental principle of the, of the, 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 the Mishnah tells us. That we shouldn't serve a Kaddish Baruch Hu with the intent to be rewarded. So if on the one hand, the Mishnah tells us that we're not supposed to serve Hashem with the intent to be rewarded, how could we then have four principles of belief which all will revolve around reward and punishment? They would seem to be clashing with one another, at odds with one another, these two, uh, these two ideas. But the reality is, is that... Um, uh, is that the awareness, the, the principles don't tell us that we should serve God so that we could be rewarded. What the, principles tell, what the principles tell us is that it's essential to know that there is such a thing as reward or punishment. Why is it essential to know that there's such a thing as reward or punishment? So one answer to that is, is that part of what makes mitzvahs binding and part of what makes mitzvahs or averas on the flip side are something to, uh, to be avoided is the fact that those are actions which carry significant weight. Reward and punishment only exists because our actions matter. So if our actions matter, or sorry, if, if there was no consequence, uh, if, you, uh, if we say to your, uh, uh, your, uh, your, your kids at the table, you better eat your Brussels sprouts, and they say, because nowadays kids are chutzpahdik like that, they say, or else. So if there is no or else, then what compels them to go ahead and eat their Brussels sprouts? Just because you told them? Just because you told them to eat their Brussels sprouts, if they have any motivation or any, uh, if they have any um, uh, opposition to eating those Brussels sprouts, unless you have a pretty good or else, they're not going to eat it. Eat that fish. It's just not going to fly. No, no, matter, no matter how many times you say eat that fish, if there's no consequence of literal death or something uh, rising to the level of death. So it's just not going to happen. There's not enough motivation there without that, uh, without those externals of reward and punishment. So the reward and punishment, they are what uh, uh, drives us, that what makes us realize, that's what gives us uh, the awareness that these things are actual mitzvahs which are binding and not just pieces of advice. There are many pieces of advice which we come across, and you can either follow the advice or you cannot follow the advice, right? If you talk to a financial advisor, so they will tell you, invest early, early, early. The earlier you start investing, the better. But at the time that they tell you that, there's no consequence which you face. So nobody faces any consequence. Nobody faces any reward if they put that $50 away that first month uh, you know, that, they, uh, that they work. So they don't see any reward of that. So it doesn't carry much weight by them. And they figure, you know what? Those $50 could buy me a couple of cappuccinos. 
Ed, I'd rather have the cappuccinos now than the $50 sitting in the bank doing nothing. And they can't see that big picture. So awareness of reward and punishment lets us know that that these things are uh, that these things are uh, are binding, and that these things are uh, are, are important. The uh, a, a deeper element of that is the fact that reward, what reward and punishment communicates to us, and this I think is really the more important part of it. And what that communicates to us is that Kadosh Baruch Hu cares about what we do. As we all know, whether we've been on the giving end of that or on the receiving end of that, in any way, shape, form. It could be in the context of a relationship with a spouse, it could be in the relationship with a parent or a child or a coworker or a boss, but getting the silent treatment, being ignored is sometimes much worse than being yelled at. Because if you're ignored, that means that you're not even significant enough for the person to go ahead and make fun of you, or they're not even significant enough to even care about what you do, uh, you just don't rank by them at all, and therefore they are going to be uh, they're going to be ignored. I remember uh, in Beis once somebody went up to one of like the uh, the Kolo guys before Yom Kippur, and he said, "I want to ask for mechila for anything which I may have done or said over the course of the year." Standard conversation, which uh, you know you expect to hear all over the world around uh, Yom Kippur time. So this person, who uh, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a character, so his response was. What makes you think that anything that you could do would have any significance to me whatsoever? <laughs> Which was a funny response. He didn't mean it in a, in a negative way. He meant it in a funny way. But it captures this point that mechila in, in, in caring about what one does means that one cares about the relationship. And if we know that Kodesh Baruch Hu cares about what we do so that he's going to reward us for doing the good things, and he may punish us, or there may be consequences for what we don't do, that lets us know that we're not insignificant. That we're not just a speck over the course of time, which has no uh, importance or no significance whatsoever. It lets us know that that relates back to the omniscience, the fact that God is paying attention, not only globally and universally, but he's paying attention to what we're doing as individuals, and what we do as individuals is worthy of Hashem's attention to such a degree that he's going to go ahead and distribute reward and punishment based on what we go ahead and do. And that's something which is in many ways quite empowering to realize that we stand to, we have a close enough relationship with Hashem that he's attentive to what we do individually and he is going to, uh, he's going to, uh, to respond. Yes, yes, uh, those who could see the chat or not. Uh, Bacha wanted to uh, ask, isn't the system of reward and punishment also feedback to know that the system is, is working? Yes, uh, so in, in some ways, uh, so that's why I hesitate to use punishment in some ways. I'd rather say uh, I've been using a consequence, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu didn't um, struck, we, we say, Schar Mitzvah Baha'i Amaleka. That's what the Gemara and Kedushin says. That Gosh Baruch Hu doesn't give out reward for mitzvahs in this world. Those are really going to be reserved because whatever reward he's going to give us in this world is really inconsequential in comparison with the magnitude and the importance of the mitzvahs which we do. So real schar, real reward is reserved for Olam Haba, is reserved for the world to come. The most that we have in this world is, or like another mission in Perkei tells us, which is schar mitzvah mitzvah that if we go ahead and we do a mitzvah, so that puts us on a good trajectory so that we have opportunities to be able to do more mitzvahs. So that's more consequence-like than it is reward and punishment-like. 
So in this world, much of what we face is consequences for our actions, that the, there's laws of nature, there's laws of physics, there's laws of chemistry, there's laws of biology. So there's laws of behavior that exist in this world, schar mitzvah mitzvah, schar avera, avera goreris avera, that one avera is going to generate or leads to, a, to, another, to another avera. So that's what happens in this world in the event that, the, in the reason why, we'll talk about, but the reason why we don't have true reward and true punishment in this world, we don't have that proverbial lightning bolt zapping us as soon as we go ahead and we bite into that double bacon cheeseburger is because if that were to occur, that there were to be this direct correlation between the Avera and the punishment or the mitzvah and the reward, so that would take away our Bechir Chavshis. So Bechir Chavshis, in order for that to exist, in order for free choice to exist, we have to have the possibility of being able to deny. There has to be plausible deniability. And we have to be able to say, it's a coincidence. This has nothing to do with that. We have to be able to rationalize in our mind why these things are different. And, uh, and that's something which is, uh, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu created mankind with the ability to forget, which is a very important part of human existence, is the ability to forget and the ability to ignore. So part of that was also going to be that we could rationalize away. So we have, you know, I, I wasn't around, but uh, some of the people there. So after, let's say, the 67 war, I think there was a great resurgence of connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, divine miracles. We got back to Yerushalayim. We, the, the Jewish people and the Jewish state were going to be annihilated. And miraculously, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, was, it was a clear and evident nace to everybody who was, uh, who was observing that at the time, except for the, uh, the biggest skeptics. And then over time, what happens to that great miracle and that great inspiration? It loses some steam. It dissipates and we're no longer impressed with it anymore, and we forget about it, and we go back to our daily lives, and that's part of the nature of who we are, that's what allows for the free will to, uh, to exist. So all of that is going to be part of the, uh, part of the, uh, the system as, as well. So that is as far as the final uh, set of uh, uh, the, the last set, third set of the, uh, the four principles. And uh, so we hope in the coming weeks, so next week in Ritz Hashem, we'll start with principle number one. We'll start with uh, the uh, um, the uh, the existence of Akash Baruch Hu, uh, in a sense, how we know that, do we know that, is it something which is provable, it's something which is not provable, uh, but the uh, Mirza Hashem will get to all of that, uh, that and the, uh, the rest of the principles in the, uh, the coming weeks. Any additional questions, comments, thoughts, complaints? Thank you, Rabbi. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. I appreciate everybody coming. Thank you, Rav Tov. Eretov, Eretov. Eretov. Email is coming.